0: Powered by MPB, this is Chalkboard Chat, an MPB education podcast, hosted by Jermaine Flood and Tara Wren. To hear this episode and more, visit education.mpbonline.org or download the MPB public media app to listen on your iPhone or Android device. Jermaine
1: Flood broadcasting live for Chalkboard Chat. We are now at the B.B. King Museum and Delta Interpretive Center here in Indianola, Mississippi. We are going to be taking a tour for our Mississippi Music Appreciation episode of this great museum. We're going to go all the way from the front all the way to the back of the museum. And we're going to have such a blast. The music that they have playing outside is so amazing. And of course, you already know who it is. It's B.B. King. just now
2: walking in. I am being greeted by Miss Lee. Miss Lee, welcome to Chalkboard Chat. And welcome to the B.B. King Museum and Delta Interpretive Center here in Indianola, Mississippi. I am Malika Polk-Lee, the Executive Director here, and I would love to take you all on a tour.
1: We would love to go. Please get me started. I am such a fan of B.B. King. You already know I'm going to be so just through the roof on everything that you show me.
2: Well, let's get started here. The first part of the tour is to tell you how the museum was created. We have a historical cotton gin here in which the museum was built around. That's the major focal point when you first drive up, the first thing you see. And the interesting thing uh, about that cotton gin is that Mr. King actually worked in that cotton gin as a child. So when this spot was chosen, that just solidified the fact that this was the perfect location to create the BB King Museum around.
1: So cool. So He actually worked at this particular cotton gin sitting on this
2: land right here. Yes, when this was a historical brick cotton gin, and what was done was, as you know, everything was gutted out from the gin perspective. We kept the look as far as the walls, if you see the original brick walls from when the gin was built. We put in flooring, made it structurally sound, redid windows, but basically this structure itself is the original brick structure.
1: That is so cool. So tell me about him as a child working here. How old was he?
2: You know, I don't know the exact age, and I don't think Mr. King gave it when he told the story about him working here. When they brought him to view this site, this was the city dump, city pound area, and this gin was sitting here and all that other stuff was built around it. And they were nervous about him seeing this site. And when he came up and he saw the site, he told them that, you know, they were like, yeah. He said, do you know what that is? And he, they said, yeah, that's a brick cotton And he said, but did you know I used to work there as a child? So I don't think he went in depth about the age, but just to know that, you know, was a very interesting fact. And to know that that is a part of history, too, another part of history for this museum. So he actually
1: had his hand in choosing and selecting this site as the site for the museum.
2: Yes. Mr. King was a part of this project from the beginning and you'll see that as we go through the exhibit when you see all of the artifacts and gifts and donations that he gave us to help create this space you'll see that he had a very intricate part played in creation of this museum
1: well i feel even more special to know that i'm somewhere that he actually laid his hands on
2: yes he actually did and you know he came back to this museum every year until 2014, and he passed in 2015. So it was, it was a part of his history, you know, once it was built, it was a part of him, a part of his history, and he visited every year. Good yeah. stuff, well, I'm ready to go to the next spot. Okay, let's go. If you were starting a traditional tour, you would go through our intro theater, but it's a film, it's a short film, it's about 12 minutes long, but we're gonna start in our first gallery, which is our Sense of Place gallery. This first gallery, Sense of Place, It's to acclimate you to where you are. It's about sounds, facts, things you would hear in the Mississippi Delta, a map to show you your location in the Mississippi Delta, to acclimate you to where you are. So you get a sense of, you know, being here as you go through Mr. King's story, okay? So this is sense of place, we'll move around over into early years. The early years focus on Mr. King's life as a child. It tells the story of, you know, him being orphaned early on, losing his mother, going to live with his grandmother, losing his grandmother. And this film here in this area really tells the in-depth story. He tells the in-depth story himself. So as a visitor, you really get to feel the emotion of him growing up by himself, losing his grandmother and mother. When you come through this area. It tells you about the school he went to as a child for a short time. You know, African-American kids really didn't get a chance to really participate in the education process like they should because, unfortunately, they had to help their family out and go to the fields and work. So it wasn't like a year-round thing like now what kids would think normal school is. They didn't have that luxury. Maybe a few months out of the year. They got a chance to go to school. And so that was his life, their life, and the lives of other African American kids during that time period.
3: My mother went blind before she died. The feeling of fairness, honesty, and Goodness. A lot of it came from my mother. My mother was very religious. She made me go to church whether I wanted to or not. When I first knew anything about life, I was near my birthplace. a little town called Brickclair. Motherless children have a hard time When your mother is dead My mom left Motherless from but Claire in that area. And when she died when I was nine, uh, my grandmother, I lived with her, and she died the next year. I lived alone from the time my grandmother died until I was 14.
2: So if you come on around to the next gallery, this is what we call the Club Ebony Gallery. Uh, it gives you a little history about the historical Club Ebony. Uh, so many artists... Uh, African-American artists in, in the, back in those times played at Club Ebony. Club Ebony was a part of the Chitlin Circuit. Mm-hmm. And the Chitlin Circuit was the circuit of clubs throughout the U.S. where African-Americans got a chance to showcase their talents. Without places like the Chitlin Circuit, African-American artists in those days would not have had a place to play because they were not welcomed yet in the white clubs to perform at the white venues. So they had to have places like Club Ebony for the chilling circuit. But Club Ebony is not just important because of the contributions to music and musical significance. Club Ebony was a meeting place for the community. It was a community hub. A local activist in the community met at Club Ebony to strategize and plan. So it was a true cornerstone in the African-American community. And if you think about African-Americans in the time, uh, you've been out in the fields all day doing manual labor, on farms, doing manual labor. Club Ebony was a place where you could have some mental release, de-stress, let your hair down, see other people in the community, have that camaraderie to keep your spirits up, you know, because that was really mentally uh, stressful time for African-Americans trying to go through and live through the struggles of segregation and deal with those things. So Club Ebony provided an outlet also for the citizens in the community. So Club Ebony was here in state. Club Ebony is here. It's five minutes away from the museum. And we actually own Club Ebony. Club Ebony was purchased by Mr. King. Can't remember the exact year, but he donated it to the club in 2012. He purchased it from Mary Shepard, who had been the owner for years, Ms. Shepard. And she was getting ready to retire. But because of the significance of Club Ebony, the historical significance to African-American history and life and culture, also to music, Mr. King purchased the club from her because he felt like it was important enough that, you know, Club Ebony should be sustained. He purchased it, and in 2012, he donated it to the museum. So we actually own Club Ebony. So what Is it still in working order? Is it still up and running? Club Ebony was up and running up until 2020. When we shut down for the pandemic, we shut Club Ebony down too because, as you know, everything came to a stop. We are in the middle of trying to do some renovations at Club Ebony so that we can get it back up and going. But before we shut down in 2020, Club Ebony functioned as an extension of our exhibit because of all the history over there and the musical history. It also functioned as a place where we could have events. The community had a chance to rent Club Ebony for community use. And every year for homecoming, Mr. King would come back and play an intimate private concert over at Club Ebony at night. So amazing. And so that was a chance. That's what really made Mr. King who he was. His connection with the fans wasn't so much the record sales or or the album sales, but he was the ultimate performer. And he knew how to connect with his fans on stage. You can meet people that went to a B.B. King concert 30 years ago, and they want to tell you about it. I remember this time I went to B.B. King concert. It was something that he had that was very powerful when he was on that stage and his ability to connect to his fans. And that is what made him the icon um, that he was. He was a very humble performer also. When he did those uh, concerts at Club Ebony, he would stay until 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning to sign the last autograph for that fan standing there waiting. So very humble performer. And that was that connection that he made with his fans that made him who he was. Not to name drop, but I've got one of those B.B. King,
1: I saw him stories. And then, too, with the connection that you said that he has with his fans, he also has some of that same connection with history. And he knows when to say, okay, we need to get this because this is part of history. And I just love that.
2: Yes, he did. You know, Mr. King was a very intelligent man. Even though he wasn't formally schooled, he was a very intelligent man elderly people call it common sense and mother's wit or, or something of that nature but he was a very intelligent man and you know as we go through the exhibit you know we'll talk a little bit more about you know his likes and things that he was really interested in and that people really didn't know about him. Well let's keep moving I've got you stuck here I'm, I could pick your brain all day <laughs> Let's move on around Our next gallery is what we call the Memphis Gallery and this is when Mr. King became B.B. King. Mm -hmm. Mr. King, when he was in Indianola, he started out playing gospel. He was in a gospel quartet. But at nights he realized he could go on Saturday nights and play in some of the clubs. So he began to realize that, you know, I can make more money playing in the clubs than I can play gospel music. Plus, he was faced with a decision. If you know most Christians, especially back in those days, blues was the devil's music, and you can't do both. You can't, you know, play in the clubs on Saturday and get up and sing gospel in the church on Sundays. It just wasn't going to work, and so he had to make a decision, and he chose to go the path of blues. In this family, in this area, you can hear him tell that story himself, why he did what he did. One of the significant things is Mr. King transitioned to Memphis is where he got his name, where he got the name B.B. King. So he would play on Bill Street at night, and the name came up. He was called the Bill Street Blues Boy, hence B.B. King. Right. And so that's where he got his name from, playing on Bill Street. And this is the beginning of the making of the man that we knew as B.B. King. His real name is Riley B. King. And when uh, Blues Boy adapted and it stuck, it came B.B., Blues Boy. I love it. I love that. Yes, and that's where it came from. So if you get on around here in Memphis playing, and he realizes that, you know, to make the money that he really needed to make, He needed to get on the radio because that's how artists were beginning to transition into making the money and building their career. So Mr. King went to the radio station here in Memphis known as WDIA. WDIA has its own history, if you know anything about it, because WDIA, was the radio station that played African-American music. It was the only radio station at the time where African-Americans could go get their music played, get their music heard. And so WDIA was a foundation point in in helping to create the African-American music sound and and, and sharing it with the world at that time. To get on the radio, Mr. King was asked, could he write a jingle? And he said, yeah, what do you need a jingle for? And the guy said, well, you know, we need a jingle for this Pepticon. Pepticon at the time was a cure-all for everybody. Do you remember in the days doctors would go around and sell? Yeah. Pepticon was one of the things they sold. Well, the great thing that made Pepticon cure-all is the percentage of alcohol that it has in it. Hey, you alcohol in you, you're not as sick as you were. <laughs> it didn't really have any true medicinal properties, but... Hey, you get you a good, good amount of alcohol, and you think you feel better, and you're healed even if you're not. And so Mr. King came up with this jingle, uh, Pepticon, Peptagon, show is good. You can find it anywhere in your neighborhood. And he was hired. And that's how he got on the radio.
1: Yes. So amazing.
2: Yes. And that began the real kickoff to him getting on the radio, getting a chance to record his first album. So this is our WDIA gallery, and it tells that entire story. He tells that entire story from his perspective when he recorded his first album, Three O'Clock Blue, Miss Martin King, and all of those great beginnings for him. He tells that story here in WDIA.
3: (laughs) 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 Greetings and salutations. Ooh, poopy-doo, and how do you do? a good, good morning to you on an all-blue Saturday here on WDIA with your Rufus times. In
0: 1947, when WDIA first went on the air, it was the first all-black program radio station anywhere in the country. It gave a voice to a, a portion of the population that simply did not have a voice in mass media. Don't
3: start me talking I'll tell everything I know Feeling gay though he ain't got a dollar Rufus is here So hoot and holla, <laughs> Ha ha Right here on WDIA The voice of Memphis, Tennessee I got there to this radio station So say uh, You think you could write a jingle? Yes sir I can write a jingle So well, let me see what you can do And I started Pepticon show is good PepsiCon show is good Kepticon's show is good, you know. Kepticon's show is good. Kepticon's show is good. Kepticon show is good. Show is good. You can get it anywhere in your neighborhood is your heart. <laughs> That's how I got on the radio, W-D-I-A.
2: So, he recorded his album. He's getting radio time. People are beginning to know who Mr. King is. They're requesting for him to come and perform. Hence, the beginning of our next gallery on the road. This is when Mr. King begins to travel through this famous Chitlin circuit of clubs to perform. As you see, the Chitlin circuit went a little bit of everywhere, predominantly in the southern states. But it also crept up north into some of the other states. And so this is the travel route at that time, that Mr. King took. And this began his career on the road. As he went to more and more places and recorded more and more albums, he became more and more famous and more and more requested. He tells the story about how they had to travel as African-Americans on the road. Of course they had to have a green book because African-Americans had to know where they could stay and lodge because you, you gotta think you're still traveling during the time of segregation, there was an African-American travel guide that was produced during that time. And this is what they used to know where they could stay. He talks a lot in the film in this area about how they would have to drive for miles before they could stop. Because some towns you just couldn't stop in. They couldn't even get anything to eat in some towns, let alone lodging. So he was, like I said, a very intelligent man. He's riding in this bus, took a lot of gallons of gas to fill this bus up. And he tells a story about when he got smart, he began to, when he would stop at the gas stations and uh, he would let them start putting the gas in because they would be excited to fill up a bus, that's a lot of money. And he would say, well, you got in the restrooms we can use? And they would say, no, we don't have any color restrooms. He'd say, oh, stop the gas, I don't want any more gas. And they would let them use the restroom because they didn't want to miss that sale. <laughs> Now, Miss
1: Lee, I want to get my listeners' visual perspective of what I'm looking at right here, Mm -hmm. because this is beautiful. Mm -hmm. I don't know who designs you all's museum here. Gallagher &
2: Associates designed this museum. They designed the original and the expansion that we did last year that we grand opened in June, and also the Memorial Pavilion. So we've had one designer from beginning to end. Now, we'll move on to the next gallery, which is the Artist to Icon Gallery. So, he's on the road, he's traveling, people know him, he's getting his fans, he is B.B. King now. But this is where he, in music terms, people like to say crosses over, and the British invasion starts, all of that, which really blew blues music up to another level. And this is why we call this section From Artist to Icon. He becomes not just a regular traditional blues artist, and he moves into this iconic status, as his music begins to reach a different audience that now begins to appreciate and love blues music. In this area also, we talk about the struggles that were going on during that time. We talk about the civil rights struggle that was going on during that time. Mr. King is telling you about it. In this film, he talks about what was going on in his life at that time, how he helped participate in the civil rights movement, and the effect it was having on him, African Americans here in the Mississippi Delta, and African Americans on a more a nationwide scale. So, this area here, Artist Icon, deals with all of that, everything that was going on in his lifetime how his music began to evolve, how, you know, the world began to change and evolve as the civil rights movement took foot and really started to get some movement behind it. A lot of people don't know that, you know, how homecoming, which is traditional festival here in the Mississippi Delta got started, was because of Mr. King's friendship with the Evers, with Charles Evers and his brother, Megar Evers. And Mr. King started homecoming as a way to support the movement and honor Megar Evers for all he had done for the Civil Rights Movement here in the state of Mississippi. And it started as a partnership with his brother Charles Evers. And that's how the Homecoming Festival got started. And the tradition, Mr. King continued that tradition for over 40 years until he couldn't play anymore. So he wasn't a vocal activist. You would have seen out marching or anything of that nature. But he supported the civil rights movement through his performance, concert, his time, and some financial giving at that time. But it was near and dear to who he was. And if you listen to any of his films, he talks about it. He expresses the emotion as he talks about those times and what he was challenged with and what African-Americans in general were challenged with. And so we tell the honest story of what happened in Mississippi, what happened in the Mississippi Delta, so that people can get a real perspective of, yes, he was this great famous musician, but it was not without trials. It was not without hardship to get there, just because of the color of his skin. Right. When it comes down to some of the items
1: in these collections, in these exhibits here at the museum, this is out of his personal
2: Yes, everything donated to us by Mr. King came out of his personal. It's actually clothes or uniforms or outfits that he wore. It's actually artifacts that were in his home. This area that we're in now is one of the most interesting when we think about the kind of things he donated. This is Mr. King's home studio. And everything in this studio was his actual home studio in his home in Vegas. Our team, at the time, asked him for some things, and they were able, he said, well, go out there to the house and basically label what you want and see what you want. This home studio, everything was photographed, labeled, just as it was, and everything in that home studio Mr. King donated. So this is exactly how it was set in his
0: home.
1: I'm My mind is blown. I mean, you literally have certain things turn certain ways. You have certain books of the pages open. Right. You have a like a plastic drawer roller stuffed with stuff. He's got statues on the floor. He's got a laptop on the floor. And then of course his keyboard and his computer on the desk and the mixing equipment and the turntable and the clock on the wall and the lamp. It's literally, y'all took a picture and then just set it up again. Just
2: reset it up again. Took a picture, labeled everything and set it up again and when he saw it for the first time I'm told that he says wow y'all took everything even the carpet because the carpet is exactly like the carpet we didn't take the carpet from his oh, house okay. but the carpet is exactly like the carpet that was in his office oh, but everything else we did take this is so cool this so is something to see he was very generous in donating his suits that you see in the exhibits his shirts his these guitars. He was very generous in donating these things to us. Medals, papers, album covers. I mean, if you go through... And then this wall is very interesting. The wall of Grammys. We have all of Mr. King's Grammys, but one. Okay. And the only reason we don't have that one is because he didn't have it. Oh. <laughs> he didn't know where it was. That's just how humble of a person he was. So... We have these on display. We have one on loan at the Grammy Museum, Mississippi. We have two in a box that have not been opened up. So we would have 12 on display had we had the one that's not on loan. And two in a box that he never opened up. They're in the actual original box that he received the Grammy in. He never opened them up. And so we haven't displayed those yet. In time, we will. So we have 14 of the 15 Grammys that he won.
1: It's just so cool he knew to make sure that he put this stuff inside of a museum yes. instead of giving it away. He could yeah. have gave it to family. Yeah. He could have gave it, you know, to yes. just anybody friends, yeah. but he decided to, you know what, let's stop this. Let's put this stuff in this museum because when I'm gone, it'll still be here.
2: Yes. 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 Like I said, very intelligent man. The things that he held on to is just amazing. When you think about the documents all of these documents, and and these are things that he had, had uh, been keeping for years, over over years, just years and years of things. Like you said, you would think that he was he had a lot of forethought. Maybe he knew a museum was going to be built in his honor. <laughs> oh, to have kept he could have had a little Fred Sanford in him too, Yay. and he was just a a little a little bit of a hoarder. No. Could have been, could have been, could have been, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that could have been it. And so this is where when you finish this section this would have been where the original museum stopped up until we decided we knew when mr king passed that we had to tell the final chapter of his life the museum opened in 2008 mr king was still touring there was still a whole chapter of his life that had not been told and we knew that we were going to have to do that when he passed away and so when he passed away in 2015 We began this project of expanding the museum and creating a memorial courtyard for him, especially once we had the honor of being chosen as his final resting place. We knew we had to do this. And so we started this project in 2015, finished it last year, did a grand opening and unveiling in June of last year, 2021. And so this is where you are. This is the expanded portion of the museum. It talks about his legacy, his legacy in music, his legacy as a man, his legacy as the ambassador of the blues, and we do talk about the funeral and the honors that were paid to him.
0: It's really tells you who he is, and uh, he's the master. He really is uh, the grand master.
2: A section that you can go in and play the guitar and create your own little beat kids love it you go you sit in at the guitar you turn the computer on and it'll record your little tune that you create you know hopefully we're thinking about in the upcoming years how do we upgrade this so that maybe you can take your little tune with you now that people are doing that we haven't figured it out yet but as of now you can record your little tune And uh, like I said, the kids love this. They love coming in here to play the guitar. And you'll see it on the screen. And it's one of those interactives that all ages love. So when you enter this part of the gallery, of the new gallery, there were three artifacts that Mr. King had donated to us that we didn't have anywhere to house. Two vehicles and a tour bus. Wow. And he donated these in 2012 also. It's a Rolls-Royce and an El Camino. What? Yes. And a
1: whole bus in here. There's three vehicles in here. Yes.
2: (laughs) We had the two vehicles when we first got them in 2012. They were housed at the Tupelo Auto Mall for a while. We were fortunate enough that they wanted to showcase them and we were able to put them there. But we knew that we had to bring them home and properly house them here with the rest of his artifacts. And so when we were designing and designing this expanded area, we took into consideration the need to be able to house these artifacts. This is beautiful. I've never seen a Rolls Royce this close. Well, here you go. <laughs> now, and not just any Rolls Royce, but B.B. King's Rolls Royce. Right. And it literally has BBK1 on the front of it. Yes. Now, the Rolls Royce, you know, he didn't drive very much because Mr. King was a very humble man. And he just felt like this was a bit not his character to be in. But the El Camino, I'm told, (laughs) was one of his favorites. um, You can't beat an El Camino. It's literally
1: a car and a truck all in
2: one. All in one. And so (laughs) I'm told he liked to ride in the El Camino. And if you look on the doors of each side of the El Camino, They are music notes, B.V. Oh, the Bs on the staff. Right. So cool. Yep. I would have loved to see him driving in this Uh, one. Yeah, I'm sure it would have been quite an interesting thing. (laughs) Yes. To see him driving it, I
1: have to say, this one is a lot louder than the Rolls itself, even though this is a Rolls Royce and this is an El Camino. El Camino, yep,
2: exactly. (laughs) This is it. In this area, we take you through... Mr. King's World Tours, and all the different countries and continents that he toured through. You get to see on a life-size wall map of everywhere he he gone over the years. This room is just expansive. Yes. I've
1: never seen a museum with three full-size vehicles in it.
2: Yes. This is just
1: <laughs> it mind-blowing. to be
2: this size to get it in here. Think about getting this tour bus in here. So this is
1: the one he toured in all the time.
2: This was not the last one. This was the one before the last one. He donated it to us. And the interesting thing about this tour bus is that in the back of this tour bus was an actual bedroom. Because they stayed on the road so much, that was Mr. King's area. It was a, a office-bedroom combo where he slept. There was a restroom on this bus for him. There was a refrigerator. He had DVD players, CDs. Because this was his traveling home. He stayed on the road so much. One year, Mr. King was on the road over 300 nights. Yeah, wow. yeah. And he um, and There's only 65 more left. Right, right, right. So <laughs> over 300 nights. And so... We take you through the life of his buses so that you can understand how long this man was traveling and on the road, how many years to tell his story.
1: Just amazing history. It's just so expansive and inclusive of almost everything and every aspect and part of his life, from literal childhood to his death. And if you have not experienced the B.B. King Museum in Indianola, Mississippi, and you are a B.B. King fan or you're a blues aficionado, come out and see
2: it. Once you leave the indoor exhibit, you come outside to his final resting place. A part of this project was to build a place where Mr. King's fans could come pay their respects, spend time with him, say their farewells.
1: Right before we leave out into that section, what is this section dedicated to? This is to? called
2: our exit theater. This is the final film of our exhibit, and this is the wrap-up film to to wrap the history up. And you hear Mr. King's own words, almost what he, you know, wants his legacy to be. You know, he talks about the fact that, you know, he hopes that The next little young black boy coming behind won't have to deal with the things that he's dealt with. He hoped that he's left the world basically in a better place. So you get to hear in his own words. Yeah.
1: Before you come out, you've got to enjoy this theater. But I'm ready to go see this beautiful sight.
2: As you exit, you'll get to see our AT&T Learning Center where we do all of our education programs. People can book these rooms for rentals or if they have a conference or something going on. Yes, we do rent them out. You know, one of Mr. King's desires was that we not just be a museum, that we be a place that would offer opportunity and education to the youth of this community. And so we do all of that. We have programming that goes on all year long um, for all ages, anything from health to arts. We ensure that we are a community hub. We're a community anchor. We're here for community forums. When the city needs to use the building, the police and the chief needs to have community meeting. We are here. Um, we're, we're anchoring this community and we take to heart ensuring that we um, make sure that we are living up to our mission and Mr. King's wishes every day. So in this pavilion area. We wanted it to be Mr. King. We wanted people to feel like it represented his iconic status. But with him being such a humble, uh, personable person, we wanted it to, you know, fit his character. And so um, we kept that in mind. As I said, when Gallagher worked with us to design this area, that was all kept in mind. One of the things that we knew we had to have was a life-size statue of Mr. King. So we commissioned to have this life-size bronze statue made of him where his fans can actually sit, get a sense of being with him, take a photo, just, you know, enjoy that quiet time. I love it. I love it. It makes me want to sit beside him. Do it. You need to do it. You got to do it. You got to do it. You can't leave here without experiencing that. Right. Uh It's just something about it. Um When you're out here, it's very serene, very quiet. And you get a sense of, you know, he's here. A sense of his presence.
1: Now, this architecture is beautiful. And I'm going to say this. Literally, I maybe came out here 2018, 2019 mm-hmm. for one of the festivals that mm-hmm. they had right there. The homecoming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the homecoming mm-hmm. festival. Mm-hmm. And this hadn't been in place. This... This wall that I'm looking at right now, encompassing it, and we came out a little different way. It was all done in just a little different. Yeah. Y'all move fast.
2: <laughs> well, you know, we think that it took us a long time because, all, like I said, all of this was in the works five years ago. We started this in 2015. When we finished planning the funeral, uh, the board and, and my staff, and uh, we got with the designers, and we started planning this in 2015— but, of course, COVID hit, which slowed some things down. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, the natural steps that you go through when you're trying to plan a project, the fundraising, the, the final design phases and all of those things. And, you know, we're a nonprofit, so securing funding is always, a, you know, one of those things that hurdles that we have to climb to get anything done. So we think it took us a long time, but, you know, <laughs> it's good to know. That makes me feel better that you didn't think it did. Right. So this is the final resting place for Mr. King. and um, Beautiful. We get a little quiet when we get out here mm-hmm. just out of respect. Mm-hmm.
1: The headstone reads, Riley B. King, 1925 to 2015. Don't know why I was made to wander. I've seen the light, Lord. I have felt the thunder. Someday I'll go home again, and I'll know they'll take me in and Take It Home. Lyrics from the song Take It Home, released on the 1979 album by the same name. And it features his beautiful
2: signature at the bottom. Lovely. All of the panels, aluminum panels, have his song titles etched into them. That's what those words are, They're all of his song titles. Beautiful.
1: You literally have to come out here to enjoy something like this and to feel the immense just spirit of him here, knowing that he had his hand in all of this is just a great experience. So if you have not come out to the B.B. King Museum, make sure you do that. Now, when it comes down to you were saying nonprofit Mm -hmm. and securing funds, is there donations that people can make? Yes. How how do they do something like that?
2: We we have go to our website. There is a donate button on our website. You can donate through PayPal. You can also mail us a check. We take checks all kinds of ways. You can mail us a check. You can call us to make a donation. Uh, any way you feel comfortable. But yes, um, because we are a five hundred one c three nonprofit part of how we survive is off of generous donations
1: right right and how can they get in contact with you maybe go to the website any of that
2: kind of information it's bbkingmuseum.org all of my contact information here uh, at the museum is on there and the rest of my staff there is at the bottom of the landing page an area that says staff please click it You can get all of our contact information if you need to contact us, Uh, and we welcome any inquiries that you have. Also, there's an email at infobbkingmuseum.org. Well, I've loved having this
1: tour with you today. To my audience, this has been a wonderful tour of the B.B. Key Museum and Delta Interpretive Center here in Indianola, Mississippi with Miss Malika Polk Lee. She's the executive director of this museum. Again, make sure that you go out there, go online, search every kind of link that she said, and then plan your trip. And enjoy yourself. When you make it up to Indianola, you're going to have a one-of-a-kind experience when you come inside of the B.B. King Museum. This has been Jermaine Flood for Chalkboard Chat with Ms. Malika Polk-Lee of the B.B. King Museum. And class is now dismissed. Mel King. He is the Tourism Development Bureau Manager with the Mississippi Development Authority. Kamel, welcome to Chalkboard Chat.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Jermaine. I am really, so
1: glad you're here. I
0: appreciate it. Finally, <laughs> we get to talk one-on-one.
1: Right, right. <laughs> I've been so excited just seeing you pass through all the time and always saying, hey, so this is such a perfect time for us to yes. be able to sit down and talk to each other. I was excited when I figured out it was you. That was.
0: I'm all over the place. <laughs>
1: right. That was the person that I was going to be talking to for this episode. But I'm just so glad you. To- To have you here. So, in relation to the Mississippi Blues Trail, we actually went to the BB King Museum in Indianola, Mississippi, toured that, looked around that, enjoyed our time there. So I wanted to come back and just let my audience know about how they can find more spots like that. And the Mississippi Blues Trail, of course, is going to be the perfect roadmap for that genre. Now, when it deals with the Mississippi Blues Trail. What exactly is your role?
0: Well, as you said, I'm Tourism Development Bureau Manager. And so the music and cultural trails fall within my bureau, the Mississippi Blues Trail, the Country Music Trail, as well as the Freedom Trail, which is our Civil Rights Trail, and the Writers Trail, which recognizes our literary contributions and our authors. So my bureau helps officiate the trails, help run the trail. We also host the Mississippi Blues Commission meetings, which that commission presides over the trail, and we help keep the maintenance of repairs, replacements, as well as promoting it throughout the state. And, of course, you know, nationally and internationally.
1: Who knew that it was so in-depth about the trail? I just thought, you know, from an outsider looking in, you just see these markers up wherever you go. And it's like, okay, there's a marker, but there's a whole operation behind these markers. so. Thank you for the work that you do with all of that. Now, when it comes down to maybe getting on the trail, how does that work? When do you know, okay, we're going to add a new marker to this trail, or is that something people have to submit to, or?
0: Well, it's a very prescribed process. The commission that presides over the trail is a legislative commission, so it is there is a Full legislative bill, there are governor, lieutenant governor, and speaker of the house appointees, as well as people from the community who have been involved, you know, with the trail from day one. So what happens is, is if a community or a private person or entity would like to see a trail marker for whether it be an artist or whether it be a actual business or a site, that they think is you know, very important to Mississippi Blues and the proliferation of Mississippi Blues throughout the world. What they will do is make an application to us. We have a Blues Trail application, and it's very open-ended. They just describe what the site is or the person, why they think that it is deserving of a marker, and they can give us as little or as much information and background as possible. We then take that application and submit it before the blues commissioners at our quarterly meeting. That's where they review the application, and then they take a vote. And the vote is to see, do they think that it warrants going to the Blues Trail Scholars, which is Jim O'Neill and Scott Beretta, both who are blues historians. I mean, they know everything about the blues and anything that they don't, they know how to research it. They teach they have been published in many, many magazines, many books. So they are quite, quite versed in that. And so once the scholars get it, then they make a recommendation on if they think that the applicant should receive a marker, and then the commission takes that opinion and weighs it very heavily and then makes a final decision on if the marker application is approved. And if it's approved, that's when we move to the financial side, the research side, the writing, and then we plan an unveiling in the community and, of course, blast it out throughout the state using our media resources. And we plan a, in conjunction with the community, plan a very illustrious event to unveil that permanent marker.
1: Yeah, I've seen some of those online and pictures with you in those unveilings. So it looks like a great time. Oh, yes. It's like yeah. a whole ribbon cutting for those.
0: Oh, it's big. It's <laughs> big and, and it's and it's such a tourism hook for a community. You yeah. know, some of these you know, very small towns and communities, I mean, they know the story better than anybody else. And that is their crown jewel. And that marker means to them, tourists coming from, Within the state, outside of the state, as well as international visitors who might would never be in their community if it wasn't for that marker. So it's a sense of pride. It's a permanent thing where they, they can always look at it and say, you know, and own their story as well as it brings tourism and tourism dollars to their community. And of course they get folded in to our full promotional plan right. uh, with the, with the trail. Right. Good stuff, Kamel. Now, oh, when yeah. it
1: comes down to blues, are you a fan of the genre?
0: Am I? <laughs> look, mo- most of y'all know that my initial profession, and I still do, is I'm a music attorney. So I, mean, I absolutely love the blues. Most certainly. I'm I'm a multi-genre, diverse uh, genre uh, listener, but definitely blues is, is very close to my heart.
1: Right. What is one blues artist who you can just rattle off the top as maybe one of your favorites? I know there are oh, probably many. That's easy.
0: Bobby Rush. I just got off the phone with him. <laughs> I love that man. I mean, that man is is an icon. And I mean, he'll call me out the blue, just say, hey, baby, I'm just calling to check on you, baby. See how you do it. And just to get one of those calls makes my entire month. So, I mean, I've been a fan since I was, you know, knee-high to a fly, Right. you to actually be able to talk to him and work with them and do things with them is just, I'm ecstatic about it.
1: Right. Side note, knee-high to a fly watching Bobby Rush. I don't know if you were supposed to be there, Camille.
0: I might not have been watching Bobby Rush at the time. I might have been watching <laughs> the, uh, let's just call them the accoutrements on the stage. I know
1: it. I know what you're talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. When it comes down to Mississippi Blues Trail here, how many more Blues Trails are there across the United States?
0: There are none. We are the only one. Wow. And honestly, other states try to develop trails programs and they have. But honestly, a lot of it is duplication because it is by far our biggest tourism Draw And it is internationally famous, well visited. And so no other states have an advanced trail system like our Mississippi Blues Trail and our other trail systems. And of course, which is supported by the state, supported by federal grants. It's highly publicized and it's a tight system. It's not loose at all. It's very uh, organized.
1: Right. This is a gem that we only have here in the state, and I love it. I love that. Now, when it comes down to how many markers there are on the Blues Trail, how many?
0: (laughs) Yeah, 209. Oh, wow. 209 markers, most of which are uh, in Mississippi, but they are also in seven other states and four other countries, so it is a international and uh uh international market system so it spreads we've got them in in all over the country but of course most of them are within the state and focused a lot in the delta and of course the jackson mississippi capital region but they're all over the state most of them are in the state but they span out everywhere
1: Is placement indicative of where this music came from or that artist was from? Is there a science to that?
0: All all sorts of them. I mean, from birthplaces, because they're such as a marker of the B.B. King birthplace and Kill Michael, all the way to, you know, uh, Robert Johnson's gravesite. It can be a person or it can be a place because we uh, certainly have markers for different places that were very famous for the blues, such as trains depots. Mm -hmm. As you know, before there were interstates and everyone having cars, trains was the way to travel state by state and certain train depots, blues musicians from Mississippi would meet up and that's where a lot of different connections would happen. That was the You know, that was the Internet for the blues at the time. And from those train depots, many blues artists went all over the country, you know, Chicago, Memphis, New York, you know, all over the place from those depots. So those depots became famous. Our radio stations, certain radio stations that were very famous for getting the blues out in its earlier stages. So it's not limited to just an artist. It it could be a train depot. It could be a record store. It could be a grave site. All of those types of things that are famous sites as it relates to Mississippi Blues.
1: Right. Is there a paper map that exists and do people have to go to visit Mississippi to be able to get one of those?
0: Yes, of course, there, uh, MississippiBluesTrail.org is the website. We also have an app that you can download that also has a GPS built into it that will take you to the markers and take you to the next marker uh, and also gives you the verbiage of the marker and videos. But yes, we do have brochures and maps that you can order from the Visit Mississippi website and we'll send them to you. And we go to all types of festivals and trade shows and give them out. So it lists every marker and where it is, as well as some history. So we've got all those tools, and we also are developing some augmented reality videos to now evolve the trail into Yay. the new, yeah, into the the new technology age that is going to really revolutionize the trail with moving videos, you know, depictions, voiceovers you know all type of artists who are voicing over it as well as giving a lot of background on the community. So it's going to make a whole new experience for the Blues Trail.
1: Right. No longer do you have to drive to these markers once that comes about. So that's a good development. Thank you so much, Camille, for all of this. Now, if you'd like any information related to the Mississippi Blues Trail, I'm talking about you can go out there and you'll literally click on it and you can get information about that marker. And again, the website is msbluestrail.org. Camel, I thank you so, so very much. If you were a real blues guy, I would tell you you're gonna have to sing me a song, but I know that's right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but then I'll run all your listeners off the podcast. So oh, no. I, I leave that to them. I the- do the business.
1: So. <laughs> they
0: would love to hear it though,
1: Camel. Right. Thank you so much. Again, to my listeners, this has been Kamel King. He's the Tourism Development Bureau Manager at the Mississippi Development Authority. And we've been talking about the Mississippi Blues Trail. Make sure you go out there, visit the website, visit the trail. And you've been listening to Chalkboard Chat. I'm Jermaine Flood. Class is now dismissed.
0: You've been listening to Chalkboard Chat, an MPB education podcast. To hear this episode and more, visit Education. Dot mpbonline.org or download the MPB public media app to listen on your iPhone or Android device. This podcast is hosted with love
1: by ACAS.